Would you pray with me? Lord, as we celebrate your resurrection, would you make us a people who are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And death shall have no dominion. Dead men naked, they shall be one with the man in the wind and the west moon. When their bones are picked clean and the clean bones gone, they shall have stars at elbow and foot. Though they go mad, they shall be sane. Though they sink through the sea, they shall rise again. Though lovers be lost, love shall not. And death shall have no dominion. Dylan Thomas in the post-war period struck with the reality of death borrows words from Romans chapter 6 to join the beautiful fools throughout the ages who have dared to hope that maybe, just maybe, death would have no dominion, that death would not have the final word. We are all confronted with the, the brutality, the reality, the inevitability of death. Though in our society, we like to hide it. We like to hide it in the back corners of hospitals and in sanitized funeral director homes. We, we know that it's there. And sometimes it takes a, a pandemic for it to rear its ugly head again. We make jokes about it. We say things like, the only things you can't avoid are death and taxes, though I would say if you're walking with Jesus in repentance and faith and an ordained minister, according to the IRS, you can kind of avoid both. Uh, but the truth is, we have to face death. We are confronted with it. There's a saying that says you cannot understand something until you know its end. We cannot understand our humanity until we've comprehended death. We don't like to think about it, particularly when we're young, we like to think we're immortal and see that it's so distant that we just avoid thinking of it. And of course we want to avoid thinking of it. Death is the fundamental force crying out against our humanity, saying everything is futile. Everything is subject to decay. Everything gets pulled down by gravity and entropy. It is the force that opposes us. And because of that, every society, every religion has had to deal with it in some way. I took one class on uh, Buddhism once, so of course I'm an expert. Um, and in traditional Buddhism, there's this concept of the realm of the gods. And the gods are like these tragic figures. They live this life of abundance, of, of decadence, and of, of power. And they may live for thousands of years. But their whole lives are tragedies, are made futile by the fact that they do die and their deaths are dramatic. And in fact, they're pitied more than humans because they do not stop to reflect on the reality and significance of their death. We live in a society which is offering to make us into those sorts of gods. Gods with great power at our fingertips, with greater abundance than any society before us, with decadence, with, with great pleasures. But it has not dealt with death. Death is the ultimate statement that we cannot save ourselves. 
but everything in us fights back. Confronted with the reality, the inevitability of death, something deep inside us says no, that cannot be. Death must not have dominion. Death cannot have the final word. When we're reading or watching stories, we struggle to believe that death would truly have the final word on the ones who would be heroes. We watch Gandalf fall into that pit, but we know that he's coming back. We don't believe that Harry will be in that in-between world for long. We've seen Mufasa's limp body at the bottom of that valley, but we know we'll hear his voice in the clouds. And when we see our Savior's body laid in that tomb, we know that tomb will not be full for long. And maybe we're just fools. Maybe we're just wishful thinkers who want to tell ourselves a story because we cannot truly grapple with the reality and the finality of death. Maybe we are to be pitied above all. But maybe, just maybe, we have eternity on our hearts. Maybe, just maybe, we have this body of flesh that will perish like any beast. But into that body has been breathed the breath of life by the very eternal God in whose image we are made. Maybe, just maybe, our resistance to the futility of death is not itself futile. This inner resistance in our human experience to death is perhaps one of the, the markers of so human bad. civilization. Is perhaps one of the markers of human civilization. It's in archaeology, uh, one of the earliest indica indications of civilization is, is burial rites. Uh, the things that we do to and for our dead. We do things that do not make sense if we truly believe that death has the final word. We bury people with items of great value that we will believe will, will aid them in their persistence after death. We build great monuments. We know the pyramids. These great monuments build by wealthy and powerful men as a way to resist death to build for themselves through their own strength and their own influence, to build for themselves an eternal name, a legacy that will persist after their body dies. And though we may know those crumbling pyramids, I would hazard that most of us, if not all of us here, do not know the names of the pharaohs under those pyramids. It's, it's not Ramesses, by the way. It doesn't work. The attempts from our own strength and from our own hands to resist death, death to express that internal resistance to the finality of death, they come crumbling down. They are subject to the same decay and futility that our bodies are. When I was in uh, Rome a couple of years ago, I went to the necropolis, uh, which is Greek for the city of the dead. It's built just outside the old walls of Rome because you couldn't bury the dead within the walls. And it really is like this city. It's a little bit strange. There's like houses and streets and the streets have names and the houses have different rooms. And they're built by wealthy Romans, the elite of Rome. And 
in order to, in some way, resist the finality of death, to, to make a preservation of the name of their family, to aid their, their honor in the next life. But I tell you what, no one goes down to the necropolis, which is underneath the Vatican, to honor the names of the Roman elite. They walk past those houses as I did with a passing interest at best. People go down into that necropolis to see the bones of a Jew. A Jew who was killed in the circus of Caligula next door, who built no monuments for himself, who was put in a shallow grave with a little lean-to on top of it to keep the animals out. They go there to see the bones, the rocks on which the church is built. They go there to see what they believe to be the remains of Peter. One who counted no credit in the things of the world to build for himself an eternity, knowing that that too would fail, but saw his only persistence, his only real resistance to the finality of death through his participation in the death of Jesus Christ, believing that if he participated in his death, he would participate in his life. He chose a different resistance, a better resistance, one rooted in Jesus Christ. And for that, we honor him. There was another monument builder in our reading this evening. A man, a rich man, a man with a seat on the Sanhedrin, a man with a private line of communication with Pilate, who had built for himself a monument, a tomb, an attempt that his family name would persist beyond his death, his own personal resistance to the finality of death through his own wealth and his own strength. But upon encountering Jesus, he realized that any legacy he could build by his own strength was worth nothing compared to the life that was on offer in Jesus Christ. And so on that fateful day that we commemorate yesterday, when Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea went down to his new tomb and scrubbed off his family name, took the body of Jesus and laid it in that tomb, preferring to participate in the death of Jesus Christ rather than to invest in a legacy he had built by his own hands. And think about it. If he had not taken his name off that tomb, if he decided to keep that for himself, we would not know who he was. His name would be lost to the annals of history. But because he chose the better way, because he believed that his eternity, his resistance to the finality of death was entirely in Jesus Christ, his name is recorded in all four of the Gospels, and we honor him for it. But that tomb is not famous because it was the last resting place of Jesus's dead body. But it was the first place of Jesus's resurrection body. Because hallelujah, he is alive. 
And in his resurrection flesh, we get the yes and amen, saying with definitive statement that we are not fools. We are not wishful thinkers who just cannot bear the, the finality of death. But in fact, it is true that death shall have no dominion, that life wins over death, light wins over darkness, and death does not have the final word. On the resurrection body of Jesus, we can say with boldness, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? This conflict we have in our being between the reality of death that we cannot simply ignore and this deep eternity that we have in our hearts, the resistance we have to death having the final word, that battle is won decisively on the side of life. But the good news of Jesus' resurrection is a good news for all because he is the first fruits of all who are being raised. I love that image of first fruits because what it means, it's not someone in winter saying, I reckon the harvest is going to be good this year, or I hope the harvest is being good this is going to be good this year, or I've read the farmer's almanac and it's looking like a good year. It's someone bringing the first sheaves of the harvest and saying, look and see, taste and know that the harvest is good because you have seen the first fruits and because we have seen his body. This is not some idle hope. This is a well-established hope that life triumphs over death, a life we participate in. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is not a blissful ignoring of the reality of death. This is not just looking the other way, hoping that death goes away like we do when we feel young and immortal. This is looking death square in the face and through delving into the reality of death, finding life. We are participants in Christ's resurrection and that we are participants in his death. As Paul says, by our baptism, he goes on. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. You know, sin is a word some people struggle with. They associate it with like a list of things that Christians will judge you for. And certainly sin includes uh, the specific ways in which we disobey God's plan of life for us. But sin is a much bigger, more fundamental thing. We are all aware of sin in our being, whether we use that language or not, whether we have a diagnosis for our symptoms. Sin is the decay unto futility of all things whose end is death. 
It's that part of us that sometimes we try and ignore, but is there that is saying that everything is being pulled down, that things fall apart, that no matter what we build, no matter what we have, it will all be thrown away because everything is subject to death. And sin reaches, reaches its fulfillment in death. Its end is death. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. There are those faithful words confirmed in the resurrection body of Jesus. Death loses this battle. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus in his death allows sin to reach its completion in death, to close its loop, to finish its narrative. Sin will complete its role unto death and death itself will die. And then he lives to God, to the eternal God in whose image we are made. We are dead to sin and alive to God. Here is the, the call and the good news. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. To know that that part of you that is dragging into decay is subject to death and is perishing. But that part of you in the image of God, made in the form of the eternal God, is your true self and is oriented towards life. We are a resurrection people. And what it means to be a resurrection people is that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But notice that in this call, in this call to be dead to sin and alive to God, Paul is not offering a vision of what things will be like in some sort of ethereal afterlife. He's calling us to consider this right now. He is saying that your resurrection life, the newness of life that you walk into, your unification with him in resurrection is something you are called to live into right now. This is the good news. This is the implication of Christ being raised, that we today are a resurrection people. And if you, are hit, if you are tempted to think that this has no relevance except for some vague afterlife, you couldn't be further for the truth, from the truth. This is good news here and now. It makes all the difference in the world to know that we are a resurrection people. I just want to look at one way in which it makes a big difference. The world that we live in is oppressed by the tyranny of urgency. In a world that is defined by decay, we have to rush to keep one step ahead of death to build and achieve and, and build these monuments to ourselves faster than they're being pulled down. We are pressed by the clock, rushing around with, a, with an inhuman franticness 
because we know in some deep rest recess of our being that death is coming. But if we are a resurrection people, dead to sin and alive to God, the one resource we have in abundance is time. If we know that ultimately our true self, the us that really matters, is not subject to that decay, then we can escape the tyranny of the urgency, the, the tyranny of needing to justify our humanity and our existence by an ever-accelerating stream of achievement and, and reaching these different goals. No longer do we do things in the world as some way to justify ourselves, to, to kind of spit in the face of death. Because Jesus has already spat in the face of death for us. Our lives are purchased. Instead, when we act in the world, we are expressing the image of the eternal God that we are created in the shape of. Not to create our humanity, but to express our humanity. Everything becomes about how we are human before God along the way, not what we build and achieve. Because anything we build and achieve will come crashing down, but you, you persist. So everything is about how it is shaping and forming you. If you are an artist, and our resurrection person, then you create, not because you need to have your paintings displayed in museums for hundreds of years. You create because you are made in the image of a creator God. If you are someone serving others through your career, starting nonprofits, helping the world in those ways, you do it not because you need to be the savior, but because you are made in the image of the one who became servant of all and who is defined by love. If we are a resurrection people, we are set free from the franticness of being human, by the tyranny, from the tyranny of urgency, which defines this world. Because what really matters about us is not subject to that same decay. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. And because he lives, we too live. Our resistance to the finality of death is validated. The victory is won on the side of our resistance. And we walk into the newness of life with him as we participate in his death by baptism. The good news tonight is this, that we are a resurrection people. And that makes all the difference here and now in our lives as we live in a different way with our lives sheltered in God. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for the resurrection of your son. And thank you that you invite us to participate in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Thank you that you did not leave us alone uh, in this being subject to decay, 
but allowed your image in us to reign supreme, that we might have length of life, eternity of life. Lord, may we heed your call to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we live in the call into the call to be a resurrection people. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.